following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. And good morning. That was the formidable vegetable sound system with Grow Do It. So one guess what we'll be talking about this morning. So you're listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson on Behind the Lines with 98.3 FM. And we're just going to have a bit of a chat about what's been going on um, environmentally for the last year. So last summer's devastating bushfires were followed almost immediately by the initial COVID lockdowns. And that taught us a lot about ourselves and what really matters to us when the chips are down. It also reconnected us to our immediate environment, forcing us to acknowledge the drastic impacts of climate change and how we connected and we had to the land that's around us. One of the first things many bushfire-affected communities did on the south coast after meeting their immediate food and shelter needs was to begin to garden again, to try and re-establish and replant what they'd lost in the fires. When COVID uh, hit and those of us in the ACT could no longer make spontaneous trips to the coast or gather for social events in urban parks and outdoors, we turned our attention to the nature in our own backyards and our balconies. For many, this was expressed as an invigorated passion for gardening. And you only had to look at the sudden spike in seedling sales and uh, gun, um, gardening supplies at Bunnings to know where communities were focusing their spare time. Uh, this passion has continued well past the initial lockdowns and many are looking for outlets and opportunities to expand their knowledge and learning. This morning's guest is a passionate lifelong gardener who would love to support and encourage as many people as possible to develop the skills to produce their own food in the most environmentally sustainable manner possible, regenerating the biological health of the soil as they do so. So please join us in welcoming live in studio this morning horticulturalist Keith Coles from Canberra City Farm. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thanks, Zena, and uh, thanks to Scotty too. Yeah, it's lovely to have you here. I've, I've had a few chats with you over the over the uh, last year or so, but I've never met you in person, so it's a, a real pleasure to finally meet you face-to-face. So, Keith, you've got quite a bio here. Like, you were brought up on a farm in southeast Queensland, and you've been a gardener all your life. What was growing up on a farm like? How did that connect you to gardening? It, I guess it connects you to nature because you're living out in in nature and that's how you make your living. If you don't interact properly with nature, well, um, you go broke. It's <laughs> the basic uh, how it works. But, um, yeah, I think, um, well, I've got... I've really got no idea of what it's like to be just brought up in an apartment all your life. Um, so I've always been connected with nature and um, I've always done gardening. And um, so it, it's basically second nature to me yeah. to go out and grow things and look at what's going on and being connected with the, with the seasons as they go, go through the season. So you're born with the proverbial green thumb. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> but you were, you were trained as a horticulturalist, but your main passion and interest is in uh, food gardens. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, my my uh, I was original. I was my horticulture qualifications were in um, what they call amenity horticulture, basically ornamental plants. You know, this sort of gardens. So landscaping for attractiveness, or yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, it's all about look. Well, it's not entirely about look, uh, but I've always been interested in food because that's that's how I was brought up. So um, my even though that's what my qualifications in my my main interest is in food production. How do you produce food on a piece of piece of land? And it's a pretty basic requirement for humans. They've got to eat, uh, and 
in the process of producing that food, you've got to make sure that you don't destroy the environment in the process, which is easy to do. Um, so there's a whole lot of issues there that all came together. There's an environmental side to it. There's the actual food, uh, growing plant side of it. But there's also the quality of your food, the quality of the, uh, of the, the nutrient density of the food. Uh, so all those things come together and it's actually quite complicated to get them all to be working together and I can't claim that I've actually got it all worked out properly myself yet but uh, one of these days someone will get it all worked out but there's a lot of bit work being done particularly now on um, soil biology, how to get the microbiology working, how do you build carbon into the soil because farming potentially has a really important role to play in drawing down carbon out of the atmosphere. If you can get the soil microbiology working properly, you can get the plant working with the plants, um, then you can fix carbon, long-term carbon in the soil. Now, you know, it doesn't work quite so well with compost because it's near the surface and it oxidises quickly and goes back to carbon dioxide. But if you get some of the more, use mycorrhizal fungi and things Just like that. Just with mycelium. Yeah, yeah, and things like that. Yeah. Then you can fix it yeah. into the soil. Yeah. And, yeah, a lot of people make compost, but sometimes they don't let it mature properly, so that oxidises fairly quickly. Yeah. And I think one of the things you mentioned, like when you're growing up on a farm and farming and food producing on the farm for the family is sort of a, a very natural way of living, we're really disconnected from that. You know, as you said, like if you're growing up in an apartment in the city, you might be lucky and have a balcony and have a few things in pots, but you don't get connected to that life cycle of where your food is coming from. Um, you know, I think it becomes in instinctive perhaps when you're part of that life cycle and seeing that, you know, you're naturally going to go out and harvest, you're naturally going to go out and, you know, know what your food looks like when it's at its optimum you know what seeds are going to produce the strongest seedlings um, and and that I think you know when you've talked about coming from a farming background there's that piece that that a lot of people in the city and a lot of people who maybe don't have ready access to land to grow have really missed out on that that um, that sort of component of, of being within that food cycle. So one of the things that's uh, fabulous that Canberra has here is Canberra City Farm, which has um, sort of filled a bit of that gap, I understand. Well, that the original idea behind... There were two guys, uh, there was myself and Hayden Burgess. We sort of pushed this city farm idea and I think it was about 2010, something like that. As it grew out of the Canberra Organic Growers Society, which I'd been in for years and years. And it was that educational component. How do you connect people? Because we have a lot of environmental problems. But unless people are really connected to the environment somehow or other, and it doesn't matter whether you're a bushwalker or a bush regenerator or a gardener, that somehow or other you need to get connected to the environment. It needs to be something you actually experience. It's all very well to read books and think about it and have all sorts of philosophical views, but unless you actually get out there in it, it doesn't sort of connect. So the whole idea behind Canberra City Farm originally anyway was to uh, be an education, education, uh, a hands-on education, education by doing uh, type organisation where people come out, have a go at gardening. They might completely mess it up, but that doesn't matter. That's fine. That's how you learn. Um, nobody who's become a gardener has ever not messed it up. You always <laughs> mess it up. And you keep messing it up, I must say. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the whole idea behind the city farm was to, through using gardening as a vehicle, connect people more closely to the environment in which they lived. 
that was the whole idea behind it. And there's a whole lot of other things go with that, but that was the that was mine and Hayden's basic uh, idea is to get people more connected, more have a more experiential connection with the environment by actually learning to work with it. And gardening is a perfect vehicle for doing that. And this was only in 2011, I believe you started I think, yeah, we start, I think we, I think it was in 2011 we became an incorporated body. So there was a lot of work that went on behind that. There used to be an organisation, or not so much an organisation, but a, a, a group here called, I think it was called the Canberra Environment Centre. It was run by... Collin Community or one of the community services organisations, and all the environment groups used to get together and you know, talk about whatever they were doing, and um, that's where I think in about 2010, maybe it was early 2011, Hayden and I went along a few times and did our pitch for a, a Canberra City Farm, and um, that's how it got started, and much to our surprise, because. Before that, I, I was on, for years I'd been on, you know, decades, I'd been on the uh, committee of the Canberra Organic Growers Society and they kept, I think they got a bit sick of me banging on about <laughs> wanting. <laughs> we started up a lot of community gardens. I think we started up about eight of those at that stage. And then I think they got a bit sick of me banging on about education and broadening the horizons a bit. Uh, so they said, okay, you two go off and um, you can set up your city farm. Don't sort of badger us about it. Uh, <laughs> so we did. We went and we did several pictures at the... Um, at this environment centre and then we held a meeting and much to our surprise, 70 people turned up. I'm like, oh, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> so that's how it got started. <clears throat> yeah, that's fantastic. So also um, people who might be trying to envision, who, don't, who aren't familiar with Canberra City Farm, I've been trying to envision what it looks like. Is it in the middle of an urban jungle? Is it surrounded by asphalt? So Canberra's a bush capital. We have a lot of wonderful uh, nature sort of between the higher density areas. So where is Canberra City Farm? It's on Dairy Road, which used to be called Dairy Flat Road, which where all the dairy farms were, that's where it got its name, um, and it's number two Dairy Road, and um, it's surrounded by the Jerobomba wetlands, and then there's a new development starting up a bit further up the road at one Dairy Road, which has all sorts of uh, coffee shops and now that's outlets. That's probably what people are familiar with, a Capital Brewing and a... Capital Brewing there, There's a there, rock climbing yes. place, a Yeah, there's, there's all yeah. sorts of... All and sorts I believe they have the forage out there too. There's a they food, do indeed uh, have that. Yeah, they yeah. have the forage event. Um, and Jerobomba Wetlands, is, which surrounds the city farm, is a really nice place to wander about. So that gives a different take on... on um, an environment about you know wetlands environment lots of people come from all over the world to look at the birds there because that's on one of the migratory tracks so there's a lot of people go through there as well and on the other side of the road is the sewerage works that's our our nice outlook onto the sewerage <laughs> work but there are a lot of very interesting birds turn up on the, on the ponds of the sewerage works now, how much um, land improvement did you have to do at Canberra City Farm? Was it fairly ideal or was there a lot of work involved in, well, in getting the soil, as you've described it, getting that soil up to that optimum place? Um, well, it was an old dairy farm. They, I think they 
they cut it up as dairy farms around about the end of the Second World War. So that was a return soldiers thing. Uh, before that, they were little blocks, which I think were supposed to grow loosen or something like that. Anyway, they didn't work. Um, and then it, they became dairy farms. And then the government, when, uh, the, the, when uh, I think about the mid-80s, the... Um, Government resumed all those, and then it became. It was a. It used to be called. Well, it was a education centre for people who didn't really fit in with the normal education system we have, the the public education system. Um, and, and then there's a there's another school similar to that called Birigai up in the Brindabellas, and the fires went through there in two thousand and three, I think it was, and wiped it out. So they moved to the site that we're at now and they stayed there for a few years until they rebuilt and then it was just vacant for 10 years or so and the rangers used to try and keep it a bit tidy. Um, And then in 2015, we moved in. Uh, So basically nothing has been done to it. Um, So the fruit trees and the vineyards and they were sort of just gone wild. Uh, They put cattle in there to try and keep the grass down and cattle and vineyards and and orchards don't go together no, no, they wouldn't. at all well um <laughs> so that some of the trees look a bit bit weird because they've had bits <laughs> bitten out of them um but yeah now since then we've set up quite a few allotment gardens so people can get allotments out there when there are vacancies um we've got some demonstration gardens like how do you do a four-year rotation bed in your backyard so we've got a demonstration backyard i guess you'd call it um we've put in in addition to the ought trees that were already there we've put in quite a lot of uh, we've put in a few not a lot a few espaliers to show people how you can do espalier trees in your backyard because that's a much more efficient way of using space if you've only got a small space like a backyard so we're talking like more about going vertical gardening right so yeah two-dimensional yep. squashing it up um, and then there's various other sorts of things. We uh, have various wicking beds, so we could show people what wicking beds look like and how they work. Um, we've got a little bit of a native garden. Uh, we've got some stool beds where you grow um, rootstock for uh, for fruit trees because you know fruit trees are never grown on their own roots. Uh, we also have um, a Fajoa orchard and a guy here in Canberra called Mark O'Connor who has selected a lot of fruiting Fajoas. Yeah, because a lot of when, when you go to a nursery, usually when you go to a nursery and buy Fajoas, um, they're just seedlings. So you might get good fruit or you might not. It's just the luck of the draw. Um, so what he's gone down, well, they've estimated there's about 100,000 fajoas in Canberra and some have really, really good fruit, which was just the luck of the draw from a seedling. So um, Mark actually goes round and tastes them all. And he's got his own little yeah. system he uses. That's a good job for you, <laughs> yeah. Joe, a taster. <laughs> yeah, he, and he works out which are good ones and which aren't good ones. And if it meets his fairly high standard, then he grafts them on the seedling rootstock. And we've got a selection of about 35 of his rootstock out, uh, 35 of his um, seedlings out, well, his, his selected fruit out there. Um, they're just about big enough for us to start grafting them on the seedling. So we'll use that as a bit of a, a bit of a fundraiser. We also have some commercial people because we're trying to do a stacked, a stacked system where we have lots of 
people working on the same site. So we've got a commercial worm farmer. That would uh, be Sid Riley, right? That's Sid, yeah. yeah we've had Sid on the show. He's Global worming. Great guy, yeah. Yes, yes, and you buy worms from him yeah. and he makes a really top-class uh, worm juice. That's supposed he, to be much better than sea salt. <laughs> yes, uh, and he brews that. That's a brewed thing. And um, he makes really good quality um, worm juice. And he's on site there and he collects all the waste, uh, well, waste from various school canteens, from offices around Canberra, and he runs them through his worm farm system. So we've also got a little backyard uh, scale demonstration of how you can do a worm farm like um, like Sid does it. He doesn't grow them in those black boxes because black, bo- black plastic boxes, if you wanted a bad thing to grow worms in black plastic boxes with the sun shining like on them. Anything growing in black plastic boxes <laughs> is probably going it's to be too happy. not a good way to go. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the main problem with those black plastic boxes, you've got to make sure the sun never hits them, otherwise you cook all your worms very quickly. So you can grow them on the ground. I used to grow worms on the ground. It makes it a lot easier. Um, and, uh, you know, all the worm juice that comes out, I just used to have it in the middle of a veggie patch and it just run out into the garden, so that was fine. Now, I understand that the, the worms that, you, that are working with your compost are quite different to earthworms. Yeah, they have a different habit altogether. So some worms are solitary and they just go down into the soil. And you know, sometimes you come, when you're digging in the garden, you'll come across it, a track where they've got, which is really good because it lets the air in, it lets the moisture into the soil. Other worms sort of go horizontally in the top layer where all the organic matter is. So they're munching away there. They're munching away. And then there are other worms, which are the ones you use in your, in your, um, in your um, worm farm. They live in huge colonies on top eating the, eating the uh, decaying organic matter. Well, they're actually eating the bacteria probably is what they're eating that are breaking down the, the the material. And so they're the ones you use in your worm farm because they have, they eat an enormous amount of stuff <laughs> and um, they they like to live in huge colonies, whereas the ones in the soil, they, they're a bit of, they're loners. They they're don't particularly worms. like company. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, there's all sorts of worms, but they, as you said, they're the, they're, they're the ones that you use for your worm farm. So you've got to get the right sort of worms. Mm. And you can buy those off um, Sid. And Sid also informed us, which I'd never known before he mentioned it, that because of the different types of worms, you can't move your worms around and mix them together. So no, they have entirely different habits. Yeah, so he so. was saying that, you know, the red wrigglers, who are your sort of worm farm worms, have got to stay doing what they're doing, and your earthworms have got to stay doing what they're doing. Yeah. So I used to be really bad, and I see a worm popping around, and I'd pop it in my compost pile. It was probably the worst thing I could have done for it. Oh, well, you know, as long as your compost pile is connected to the ground, it doesn't yeah. matter. It'll find its own habitat. Mm-hmm. But it's like all those things when you're working in an environmental system, you want a variety. Now, because you're farming worms, you know, you, particularly if you're a commercial guy, you don't want them all mixed up because that makes life very difficult. Um, but if you're just in your garden, a variety is what you need. It's same with plants. So you want some plants that have root, you know, fibrous root systems near the top of the soil, others that have deep root systems. So you're actually exploiting the whole depths of the soil and also at the same time you're increasing the microbial activity in the soil because they've all got different associations with different microbes Mm. so that's getting that all to work is actually quite tricky so I know that you started mentioning that there's um, plots that people have out there and it's gone a bit beyond that I believe there's some larger um, 
Yep. Say, call them plots, but I think it's, it's the uh, I might have their name of Broccoli Assembly. Or the, uh, the Department of Broccoli. Department of Broccoli. Yeah, they um, they are. A, we we also we as I mentioned, I was starting to mention before about stacking enterprises. So we've got the Worm Farm. He's a commercial operator. Department of Broccoli is a market gardener, and they're they're a commercial enterprise as well. And um, they, they've grown a lot of garlic out there. So what we've tried to do, we want to use the city farm also to generate more farmers for local, um, for local food production, really, because that's one thing that Canberra's pretty short on is local food production. Yes, most of our food is trucked in, right? That's right. And um, I'm sure, uh, Scotty, you might talk about this later. We've got a, food, uh, a farming cooperative that we're in the process of trying to set up. Well, Scotty's in the process of trying to set up. Um, so the other part of it is that we don't have enough farmers. So what we need to do is encourage and train people in market gardening. Now, market gardening is a different kettle of fish to growing stuff in your backyard because market gardening is your living and you've got to do it right. You know, if you grow stuff in your backyard, your tomatoes all died, oh, well, just go down to the uh, supermarket and buy some more. But if you're trying to make a living out of it, you can't do that. So um, what we're trying to – and we've got a new course coming up shortly about um, uh, setting up a – it's a market gardening course which will run for 15 months for people who are a bit interested, who want to get – Give market gardening a try. It's a fairly low-risk way of doing it. We provide the land and the water. Uh, you provide all the hard work. And um, we'll give people basic training in horticulture, how to how to do staging, how to do, you know, talk to your customers, all those sorts of things. And the Department of Broccoli is actually already doing that. Um, that's... They're a commercial market gardening system. They mostly, they sell a lot of garlic, but they do all sorts of crops. Mm. Um, and we've got a new, a new one starting up shortly. Um, so and because they, they are big plots, um, the Department of Broccoli started off with 1,000 square metres. Yeah, our normal plot's 40 square metres. So 1,000 square metres is a bit of a leap up. Um, as they were just starting out, they found that a bit of a stretch. So they've cut down to 500 square metres. Uh, the new people, I think, have got about 250, 300 square metres. And um, so we've got that. That's that other aspect of the city farm of training up new farmers because that's, that's what we really need, new young farmers. And then through the co-op, hopefully we can, we can then get them onto – we can get land because the co-op will own or lease the land. Uh, and it'll all – well, if it all goes to plan, it'll all work together quite nicely. Very lovely. They can move on from – the training part on Canberra City yep. Farm and then expand out into something more yeah. permanent. Yeah, that's the idea, we hope. So, so you talk about the, the, the market gardening course that you're offering. Yeah. So what's involved in that? Is there any experience um, necessary before coming onto the course? Can you be a complete new gardener? It's helpful if you've had some experience in gardening, but you don't have to. No, we'll, we'll take raw beginners. The main thing is you've got to be fit enough and keen enough to do it um, because there's quite a bit of work involved. Um, it'll run, the course will run 15, 16 months. So the way I was planning it to start in the first week of March and during that, that'll be an introductory 
thing and people will pick out their plots. So we'll give them uh, normally in a backyard, in a allotment garden, there's sort of more or less square or rectangular plots. When you're doing commercial market gardening, uh, that is a real pain, uh, especially if you're using a spade or a rotary hoe, you want like nice long runs. Um, so we'll give them long run gardens. So there'll be a different different style altogether the, the market gardening people will have. So then they'll pick out their plots, they'll have to spade it all, and then the first thing they'll do is plant the green manure. Once they've done that, then you just let the green manure grow over winter. Uh, that's when I'll do all the foundational horticulture. So there'll be basic horticulture. So we'll go through how plants work. Uh, how to deal with pests and diseases, and particularly we'll put a lot of emphasis on soils. How to, uh, how to assess your soil, how to look after your soil, how to um, stimulate uh, the microbiology in your soil. So we'll go through all that sort of stuff. Um, we won't do it all in one go because then when we get to about July they'll have to sit down and then they'll have to plan their next 12 months ahead of what they're going to grow, where they're going to grow it, you know, all the staging process. Throughout all this, we'll be, we'll be having sort of guest people like Sid Riley's going to give them a bit of a talk about how to run a business, you know, the business aspects of it. Um, we'll have a department of broccoli. We'll talk to them about their experiences of start and, you know, all the things you learn from trying to start up a market garden from scratch. So... There'll be a lot of practical stuff as well. We'll go to talk to um, talk to various farmers. We're going out to um, Scotty's dad's Scotty's dad's um, farm out there, and he'll have a bit of a chat That's to them. That right? yeah, out towards Bungalore. Um, and there are various other farms we'll go to. They have a really good program down at Sage uh, down their their farm. The name Maria, of it. Isn't it? Is that Maruja? Yeah, Maruja, yeah. Um, I they've forgotten the name of their farm. But anyway, they've got a, someone donated them a farm, so they're running a training course down there, and they've also got a good community garden down there where they function. So we'll hopefully go down there and have a look. And the other place which is really worth looking at, which I want to take them to, is um, the, uh, the organic farm, which is attached to New, the New South Wales uh, TAFE campus at Riverina, at the Riverina campus at Saguna. It's an educational farm. Yeah, it's, it's set up as an educational farm. And the guy that runs that's pretty impressive. So he's, he looks at more than, he's not just a market gardener because they, they've got animals as well, ranging from cows, sheep, goats, you name it. They've got all sorts of things there. Uh, I don't know where they got chooks. We do have a commercial, we've got a, a, a chook guy at the city farm as well. So we'll... Um, we want to give people as broad an experience as we can. They're not going to learn everything there is to know about market gardening in, in 15 months, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but hopefully it'll give them a bit of a leg up so that um, they'll feel confident enough to have a go themselves. Um, and there's, there are, there's lots of ways of doing market gardening. There's this, you know, the traditional where you have a an acre or whatever uh, or a hectare and you market garden that. But there are also people in Canberra who are market gardening in back unused backyards. Yes, we had them on the show too. Oh, you've had Lil yeah. and Karina on? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. A fabulous idea. Yeah. So um, that's another way of doing it. You know, you can produce food in, a, in, a, in an urban situation. Um, so that's quite a good approach as well. Um, so there's, there's 
I think we're getting set up in Canberra a lot of um, systems in place where we can actually produce a lot more food than we do at present, which is basically not very much. Um, so I think Southern Harvest have about 100 boxes, something like that. Uh, but we've got how many? 400 odd thousand people. So there's lots of room for expansion. I don't think there's going to be severe competition restricting farmers <laughs> from, you know, in terms of how much uh, food that um, is, can be sold in Canberra. I think, but I think we need to get a much greater emphasis on local production because one of the things that came out of COVID was if anything had gone, you know, if it had been so bad that the, the transport system had so stopped. So supply lines went down or something. We're, yeah. We've had it. We've got no way of producing or getting our food. Uh, and so we're in a bit of a vulnerable situation, really. Uh, we've never had it happen. That we've, they've been thought short of food. And it doesn't take very long for shortages to occur, like with toilet paper. Who'd think we yeah, run out yeah. of toilet paper? And, and you'll get the same problems, especially with food, it'll be worse. You'll get people hoarding, you'll get yeah, people like you racketeering, can you'll get That's all right. Yeah. And you can, you, know, you can live without toilet paper. It's, uh, we never, when I lived on a farm, we never had anything as, as mod con as um, toilet paper. Um, the so old you can, phone books. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and you can live without that, but you can't live without food. You've got to have food. Um, so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done still on this. And anyway, that's one of the things, some of the things we're doing at City Farm. The other thing we had at City Farm, also another enterprise we had was the commercial kitchen. At, unfortunately, Is it's it not... the cont container kitchen? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we had them on the show too. We, oh, did we, you have... We've gone um, the rounds of a few Okay, few here. yeah. So, so that was quite good, although it's not functioning at the moment, but hopefully it'll start functioning again. And also... And that's, that's Ruth, right? Yeah. Ruth, yeah. Oh, no, sorry, that's not Ruth. Well, Ruth was trying to get... Um, what happened? George, who owns it, um, she wants to... Um, she's got too many other things going on at the moment, so she wants to get rid of it. Uh, and Ruth was going to try and um, it's organising a co-op organising yeah. a co-op or something to get it going. I don't know how that's going at the moment, but um, it's a great facility there, and it's really good for us because one of the things with market gardening is when you sell straight into a market, you're always selling into when everyone else is selling the same stuff. When everyone else's tomatoes are ready, so is yours. So you that affects the prices. But if you can do value adding, which you can if you've got a commercial kitchen because you can pickle things, you can ferment things, there's all sorts of things you can do and then you – and that keeps for a long time and then you can sell it. You just release it into the market when, you know, at the appropriate time. So that adds a lot of value to the stuff you're producing. And um, and I think the way, you know, little farms or little market gardens can go is have this stacking on where you have lots of lots of different enterprises you can stack up. So you might have somebody who specialises in the preserving and the pickling and all that sort of stuff and somebody else might do drying and someone else just in a couple of greenhouses can do mushrooms. There's all sorts of things you can stack in a very small space. So I think that's another thing that uh, we've got to – well, in fact, we're working through with the uh, farming co-op. Those – how do you stack all those enterprises so they they all they complement each other. Yeah, that's yeah. the idea. 
So the other thing, uh, we actually have quite a few listeners from overseas, from the Northern Hemisphere. So I just wanted to remind them that here in Australia, when um, Keith's talking about starting in March and doing things in July, that's our autumn or our fall going into our winter. So they're probably thinking, what are they doing all this in high summer for? (laughs) So And also that Canberra, compared to the rest of Australia, does have a bit more of an extreme winter. So that um, there are a lot of people just who aren't familiar with Australia who've never been here just think the whole thing is a great big beach and it's super yeah. hot after the bushfires last summer too. So, yeah, just to remind folks that um, Canberra actually is a cool climate growing region and there's certain things that we can do here that probably wouldn't be viable if you started going up north. Yeah, that's right. Like we, uh, our tomatoes, we have to grow them in summer, whereas if you go further north, you can't grow them in summer. It's way too hot. You have to grow them all in winter. Um, so um, there's a lot of crops like that. So the, the, uh, you have to reverse things depending on where you live in Australia. And we get very quite distinct four seasons here. So from that point of view, uh, we're similar to a lot of the northern hemisphere countries, although our, our, our winters aren't nearly as severe as, uh, as uh, northern uh, hemisphere countries. Um, but... It also, um, the other good thing about having our cold winters is that we can, it helps control our pests and diseases. Because what's really good if you're a gardener is if we can get some, you know, a string of about minus sevens, minus eights, that, um, that thins out the pests and uh, <laughs> makes your life ever so much easier. If it's warm all the time, they just hang around all the time eating all your produce, is <laughs> what happens. And I'm just happy that my runner grass stops growing in winter. It's the bane yes. of my existence in my garden bed. Yeah, so you've got cooch, have you? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, well, it's because I put beds over areas that was just, you know, Lawn. dead grassland, yeah, basically. Yeah. And as soon as I start watering it and looking after it, the grass is going, yippee. Yeah, that's right. Coming that's up what through six inches do. of mulch. <laughs> so um, just to give people an idea of the commitment required for this course, so it's only about um, two hours uh, that, every Sunday, I believe, for 15 that, months? Yes, there's two hours formal sort of stuff where I, you know, we'll, I'll... I'll Give them lectures, if you like. No, they're not really lectures. I'll give them talks about, you know, so teach them about um, basic horticulture and things like that. Um, And um, in that formal stuff at the beginning, we won't have time to do compost and things. But we want to spend a lot of time on composts as well because that's that's how you actually get your soil microbiology working. So whether you want to do... uh, um, sort of fungi-rich compost or whether you want to do... um, uh, bacterial composts, um, you just make compost in different ways. So we won't be able to do that in the first bit, but in the second bit, we'll do that as we go along. Now, the two hours is for that sort of formal type stuff. There'll be more time required, though, because you're going to have to look after your plot. Some of these plots are new plots, so you'll be sure there'll be lots of practice in weeding. <laughs> lots and lots of weeds but there are tricks for dealing with weeds um, the main thing is to keep on top of them while they're you know any you don't want them to get any more than about half a about half a centimetre tall that's as big as you ever want to get a weed otherwise it just becomes an absolute slog trying to trying to keep them under control um, so yeah so it'll be two hours a week uh, for that 15 or 16 months but 
longer will have to be spent. And then on top of that, we'll have our little excursions to various market gardens. That's an extra, that's, that'll take extra time. So the minimum is two hours per, per week um, for the instructional part, that's all. Yeah, but you'd only really get a theoretical knowledge if you did it out like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, so you've got to have the practical stuff. It's important to have the practical stuff because that, you know, market garden is about practical stuff. Um, you can have all the theory in the world and your plants die, you go broke. So, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. So um, would this be viable for someone that's working a full-time job? That, Could that, they do this? That was my plan. That was the whole – that I – I try to design it for people who maybe don't have a lot of money, who can't afford to give up their job, so they can do it part-time. So in summer, you could maybe during the week after work, you could come and do a bit of work, a bit of weeding or whatever. Uh, During winter, well, then you probably have to do it all on weekends. Um, But um, that's what it's designed for part-time people who actually have another job. um, Get get you ready for market gardening too, won't it? That's right. (laughs) Working all the time. Um, There is a a good course down at uh, Maruya at Sage, but it's full-time. So that means you can't have a job. So you've got to have a bit of money behind you. And also, if you don't live in Maruya, then you've got accommodation as well. So it all starts to get a bit expensive. Uh, but this one, I tried to design it so that we could do it for minimum cost. There's still costs that have to be paid. So there is uh, there are fees associated with it. Um, you know, we've got to pay for the water and all that sort of stuff, the insurance and all that sort of thing. We'll buy the dripper systems. Um, well, we, I mean the city farm, will buy the dripper systems. So there are expenses that have to be paid, but we've tried to keep the costs as low as we can and um, make it available for part-timers or, uh, you know, if people... Cause quite, with these courses, especially when you get people who start it new, they've never done it before... It's quite legitimate to give it a try and think, oh, no, this is not really not for me. I'd much rather yeah, go that's the, the, do something else. the thing else. for B&Bs. People like the idea of it, but when they yeah. see how much work goes into it. Yeah. But that that's fine if people find that after a couple of months it's not really for them. Well, that's that's okay. You've learned something. That's and that's that's the aim of the game, to learn something. Yeah, it's so, easier uh, to learn it that way than by trying it. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the other option is to pay out huge amounts of money or get a huge mortgage and go and buy a piece of land and then find out you don't want to do it, that's a disaster. Mm-hmm. So you don't want, you, I think it's much better to sort of have a low risk environment, give it a try. If you like it, fine. If you don't like it, well, that's mm-hmm. also fine. That's good. And we've also got some at the Epic Farmers Market. I think there's a couple of vendors there that actually are market gardeners who rent yeah. uh, land. So they've you know, using a portion of a larger farm, you know, often a farm that's dedicated to grazing stock and they're using an area that's not being grazed and yeah. running a farm off that, you know, in a rental situation. So that uh, might be something that, you know, your graduates would consider potentially if they're having trouble purchasing something, it's beyond their means that they come out of the course, they're really excited and want to do something on a larger scale or more permanent that uh, potentially yeah. to, to rent. Yeah, oh, that, and that I think that works quite well. And some people have spent all their lives as as farmers just renting land. Um, it's also one of the things that the farming co-op is looking at as well. So um, if you become a member of the co-op, well, the co-op actually collectively the co-op will own the or lease some land. So they may own some or they may lease some, and then. Um, 
if you're a member, well, then you, you can use it. Of course, you have to pay for the, the leasing costs, but it's much that's much cheaper than buying the land outright usually, especially around Canberra. Because yes. Canberra, it's pretty expensive stuff. Yeah, you've got to get a ways out before it starts levelling out again, don't you? And you've got to you've got to compete with a lot of very wealthy hobby farmers, <laughs> which can be quite difficult. Well, to they do. just want large you know, blocks of land around them. And I live yeah, in, more lifestyle blocks. Yeah, than... I, I live in Hall, and Hall used to be a battler farming village. Yeah. Now it's basically luxury, <laughs> large blocks for people that want to That's do right. knockdown rebuilds. And yeah. I think they used to give land away in Hall when they wanted it settled originally. So as long as you agreed oh. to build and settle there, they gave you your land for free. Jeez, so that was how it, how it started. <laughs> yeah. We should get onto that, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> See if they still oh, offer yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, how, how many people could this could you manage in this course? Like you say, you get a lot of interest and response here. So, is there a sort of a, an ideal number of students, or is it you know people, should people get in quickly if they're really interested? Is it going to be a, a cut off well, number? Well, um, it's a bit. Yeah, it depends on the available land um, at the city farm. I'd say we probably got enough space probably for 10 max but um maybe a bit less than that um so um as far as the running the course is concerned as far as the the talking part or going and visiting and all, all the instructional part it really doesn't matter too much how many we've got but the main constraint is how much land they're going to have to practice on and that's a really key part of the market gardening courses to actually grow things. Um, so and was it, what's the minimum amount of, what's the minimum size plot that would make it viable to practice market gardening on? Well, I've, as this will be their, I'm assuming that these are mostly beginners um, and this will be their first effort. So I was going to give them about 40 square metres as either one or two long beds. Um, so I've got... I reckon we could probably, at a squeeze, we could possibly fit in um, 10. Um, But other than, there there are some other improvisations I could do, like putting rows between the the vineyards. We've got, I forgot to mention, we have a Shiraz vineyard. So in between the rows of vines, we could put, we could put a single single row there. I might have to do a bit of negotiation with the people who look after the vineyard, but I think that's a that's a possibility as well. That'll give us another. That'll give us about another eight slots. Mm. Um, and it could be mutually beneficial that way too. I think it could be. Yeah. Although I'm not convinced that the vineyard people think yeah. that. But anyway, <laughs> we'll see. They <laughs> were worried about people getting in 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 the way of them walking up and down the the rows. But I think I think we can get around it. Yeah, and it sounds like if you're going to have a lot of people who are working full time and they're doing this just in their spare time, they're not going to be there all the time. If you've got oh, a, no. a vineyard that's actually a working vineyard, they're probably you know going to be there at different hours. Maybe. Well, the plants do all the work in yeah. the vineyard, so um, it's just a bit of pruning has to be done, and, and um, you know, checking every so often. So pest control and yeah, stuff like that, that sort yeah. of thing. So it, 
it doesn't require a lot of work for the vineyard yeah. people. So I think we'll get around that, all right. So now we're going to get launch into some chatting about the farming co-op shortly, but just to um, give people some information if they want to jot it down. So how do they get in touch to register to um, participate in the course or find out more about it or talk to you? What's the best way to do all that? Well, um, probably the first, if they go to the Canberra City Farm website, which is www.ccfarm, all one word, dot uh, au. there'll be there's a thing um, there's a couple of places where um, there's a our educational page which I think is called activities um, click on that and you'll, there'll be a link and it's got my it, the email address and the email address is mg training mg for market garden mg training all one word at ccfarm.org au just send me an email via that address and um, I'll send back all the details about what's involved and things like that about the about the course so that's probably the easiest way to do it mm. I think and is there a ballpark cost at the moment to give people an idea of whether it's something they could afford for the full for the full thing is about well it depends on how you pay if you Pay in instalments, it'll be $1,000. If you pay... Total, right? Not in yeah, yeah. $1,000 instalments, but... I oh, no, no, sorry, <laughs> yeah, in total. If you pay in instalment... No, I'll start again. I got that back to front. Yeah, if you pay with instalments, and there'll be, there's three instalments, half up front, and then two, and the remainder in two instalments, uh, that'll be $1,000. So if five you, and then 250 and 250 Yeah. But if you pay up front, it's $900 is how it works. Uh, so that gives people some indication of uh, how much it would cost. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the easiest way to find out more about it, and I'm happy to answer any questions people have about, you know, if they want more details about... Because there'll be other costs, of course, too. There'll be, you know, personal equipment and... Yeah, you've got to buy your boots and your gloves. And, and, and whatever crop you're going to sow and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what City Farm provides is all the instruction, arrange, you know, arranging visits and things uh, to other places. Um, we'll pl- provide the land. You have to become... A, you'll be automatically a member of the City Farm and that covers you with voluntary workers' compo and all that sort of stuff. Um We'll pay, uh, the city farm will pay for the dripper systems, which will, will, we use dripper systems because they're quite efficient way of doing it. And as they'll only have small plots, sometimes instead of just using drippers for the seedling stage or the bringing up seeds, people also use sprays, but we won't need to do it because people only have small plots and they can do that bit by hand, saves putting in sprays as well. Um... So, yeah, that's, that's some – and the things that people would have to buy themselves is the seed, um, any compost that we don't make or on site. worms they want to get from seed or if anything they want, like that. If they want to have worms, they probably don't need worms, mm. but if they want to have worms, they could, they'd have to buy those themselves. Their seeds, depending on how we do the seedlings, um, they might have to buy a bit of um, – their own compost, unless we make the compost there. We may, we'll make some compost, but whether we'll have enough for people. We might make enough compost for 
people to use that for seed blocks because mm. uh, I think if we'll try and we'll try and use the seed blocks and that way we can inoculate the seed right from the word go. I think Capital Scraps Composting, which is based in Hackett, um, were looking for more compost donations and things like that. So maybe there could be some sort of um, partnership yeah. going on of collecting from commercial venues for food scraps. Yes, that, they, that's a possibility. And the other thing is we do actually have some really good quality uh, organically certified um, uh, compost there from Lantasia bit expensive but yeah we could we um we do have that that and that is really good quality that every batch is tested by a proper certified uh, laboratory so you can see exactly what you're getting the mix of microbes you're getting uh all that sort of stuff cation exchange to the science of compost (laughs) yeah actually it's quite it can be quite complicated and um but absolutely essential if you want your soils to work when that's what we're really our focus is on the soil if you've got the soil working the rest will take care of itself mm-hmm. i think almost every um sort of nature and garden show speaker we've had on guest we've had on has talked about that the soil is the most important thing that's right and we could actually fix a lot of the problem on the planet if we just fixed our soil yeah well at least stop destroying it which yeah. is what we're doing at the moment so I guess one of the best solutions for, you know, making market gardening viable for um, cost reduction is this wonderful idea of having a farming or a gardening co-op. Do you and Scotty want to get into the details about sort of what you've created and where you hope to take it? And I think there's a, a lot of um, great foundational pieces here that, that might be the piece that tips some of these people that are sitting on the fence deciding whether or not they want to do the course and whether or not it's long-term viable for them. Yeah, well, I guess as, um, as Keith was saying that um, we're hoping to develop this track where people can get educated, learn how to do it and then move off the city farm mm. into a, a, essentially a pipeline of, mm. of a, a food-growing network, a food-growing system for the local region. Um, and in... 2018, there was a, a farm out near Mulloon Creek, the Karula Farm, and, and the the people who are running that, Penny and Paul, uh, were doing amazing things in the in the local food system. They were um, uh, Penny in particular was getting out amongst the community. Really, one of the key organisers of a mob called um, uh, the Southern Harvest, which is now up and running and doing amazing things, and they're they're running their hundred food boxes through City Farm with yeah. an arrangement with them. Um, and they're running uh, market farmers markets in Bungendore. I think some of the others have shut down due to COVID, but there's Yeah, COVID has caused mm, some havoc, but um, yeah, they still got, yep. yeah, they've still got the uh, Bung- Bungendore one running. I think it still runs fairly strongly. Oh Bungendore's going great. Yeah, 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 absolutely. They didn't stop at all. They just moved from strength to strength. Yeah. <laughs> So they're going great. Um, where was I there? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So in, in 2018, they they needed a break, so they they took off on a holiday helping uh, organic farms around around the place, and they thought, "Geez, you know, this is pretty good. <laughs> We're going to keep doing this." So uh, so they they uh, sold the farm, which uh, the, the suddenness of it freaked out a lot of people and, and they approached Co Canberra to see if they could um, 
get a co-op together really quickly and buy this farm because the farm was being developed really well as well. It had a great little education thing set up and there was a market garden on it and a pack and boxes and the market was there, the website was there, everything was there. It was a great, uh, a great little going concern but unfortunately it was already on the market and we, we didn't have time to get that together but in the aftermath of all of that we thought, well, why don't we create something to make sure that this doesn't have to happen again because... There are a few market gardens around the place or other farms as well, any organic farm, because it's soil-based. All that work that you've put in over the decades is there in your soil, but that's vulnerable to different sort of management practices. If you come in and start spraying it or start turning it over too much... Or decide to turn it into a residential development like it's happening to some beautiful farmland. Oh, yes. Yeah. I guess you could call that a form of mulch. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but anyway, so that was basically where this came from. So we did a no, number of little workshops and stuff, and the the design intentions that we came up with out of that were to provide a stable, secure and attractive living for farmers because that's often not a particularly stable, secure or attractive uh, living. Healing the earth, so caring for the land and, and using regenerative farming techniques, so regenerating the soil. Food sovereignty, um, which is a secure supply of good food for all of our members and also a voice in deciding how that's grown. So a lot of people don't particularly want their, their food dipped in poison before it's given to them. Um, or genetically modified from fish genes or something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, the Atlantic salmon should yeah. be in the Atlantic, really, yeah. not in my veggie patch. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah. They, uh, if you want that, then you can decide it by helping to own the co-op. Um, food justice, which is uh, a little bit, um, little bit different from that. So sovereignty is your ownership and control over the means of production. Food justice is just seeing that everybody's got enough to eat, and, that's and good it. quality food too. Because mm. you know, a lot of a lot of the cheap food is junk. Yeah. Um, so, and a lot of people just cannot afford. Good quality food. Yeah. yeah, I had a friend in the 80s who uh, only ate from one of the big, you know, fast food giants and he got sick eventually. He went to the doctor and they couldn't figure it out and eventually they found out that he had scurvy. Oh, wow. So lack of nutrients. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Empty, empty carbs, That's right. they call them. That's right. He wasn't eating his lemons. Yeah. Uh, dear. That was pretty funny. So, um, with the farming co-op... Oh, um, look, I'll just finish. Oh, sorry. So sorry, there's... The, the one that Keith was saying was, was a major fun for the city farm as well, was connecting people with the sources of their food. Uh, we also want to contribute to the broader community. We want to establish and practice a regenerative culture, which, I mean, if you look at our culture, it has a lot of institutions in it. Um, it's got, you know, greed is good, you could be called an informal institution. It has... The, the money system where everything has to grow. So, you know, exponential growth on a finite planet is an institution of our culture. And, you know, the, uh, the political system is hooked in with the business system and it, it's all working together. And this has come down through centuries of, of innovation and, and wonderful imagination on how to rip the most wealth out of people and nature. Um, so a regenerative culture would try and regenerate the old ways of doing things, the reciprocal economy, the commons, the, the, better, the better side of human culture. And we want to regenerate that and bring it back into daily life. Um, 
and so is it returning to sort of the more naturalized way of living this is how things would have been before these systems were put in place well in a lot of ways like yes. in, a, in a sort of a yes. village so or a tribal community well commons we'll, we'll <laughs> talk about the commons so a commons sort of has three or four elements so you've got uh, you've got a resource or an asset <laughs> that is doing its thing um, you have a community of people who are pretty directly <laughs> involved with that and its outputs <laughs> And you have a set of rules that those people have made to manage it. And they've usually, if they're left to themselves, will come up with a set of rules that will mean that that production will be able to continue in perpetuity. So if you've got an irrigation system, the ancient ones that are all built with rocks and stuff, you know, the people using that manage it themselves. They don't have a Murray-Darling Basin Authority because they're not absolutely nuts with greed trying to rip as much as they possibly can out of the earth um, and they govern themselves completely um, and Eleanor Ostrom who was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for Nobel Prize for economics um, she her work her life was spent researching commons and she brought it back from Garrett Harding's tragedy of the commons which is actually a tragedy of the I don't know psychopathic individual corporation yeah, the or something. not making as much yeah yeah he, he had a few of his parameters wrong for the commons and that's what Eleanor Ostrom um, found out but also since then there's been all sorts of commons um, uh, a lot of the the web for instance uh, Mozilla Firefox is you could essentially call that a commons. It's made sort of controlled by its users. Yeah, Linux is like Linux that. Linux is like that. There's a whole lot of them there. So it works on all sorts of scales, all sorts of technologies, um, and that's a great one for us to bring back. And it's a simple concept, um, but it makes such a difference. Yeah, and educating ourselves and others is the last one. Well, it sounds like this was like a real response to like climate change, like the desire to build community, but it's also looking at... You know, the, the climate change situation going, we have to change the way we're working with the land. Yeah, that's the imperative that drives the whole thing because if um, if the climate... the climate People have forgotten how much the weather actually impacts on the way they live. They, they, they Particularly if you lived in a, worked in an office all your life uh, and lived in an apartment all the time... Um, you get disconnected with how nature connects with the climate because that's you know they've all evolved together, and um, if you lose that connection, well then the whole system falls apart, and yeah. people have not well some people still haven't noticed that it's starting to fall apart with the climate, um, and that's one big problem we have well not only here but in a few other places, uh, trying to get people who are in the position to make decision you know make decisions to redirect resources towards addressing the problem they're just ignoring the problem saying it doesn't exist well it does exist and or hoping uh, it won't affect them in their lifetime I think it's more of a selfish well approach. it could be that as well yeah, yeah both yeah so um, I think this connection uh, the human connection. Well, I think the basic problem is a lot of people have forgotten their animals and all animals or all living things depend on one another uh, for their existence. And we're, you know, the medical profession sort of just twigging to the eye the importance of your gut microbiome and also all the bugs that are all covered over in your skin. They're actually controlling or having a big say in how well your immune system works. 
Um, so all those things are connected. So we've got to get people to understand there are really important connections. So that's where systems thinking or you know or systems theory is really important of how systems, how complex systems actually work. Um, which is probably what a lot of gardeners don't want to know about. But anyway, that's, that's, that's really important that we start to get people to understand how these systems work and how they are part of the system. Whether you're a millionaire or whether you're somebody who's got nothing whatsoever, you're still just as much part of the system and you're, you know, you've, you're, um, you're just as important as everybody else. So in some ways this is... This is a very equalising sort of approach to to life, like the commons, where everybody and and a co-op where everyone has a has an equal say. The co-op owners have an equal say on how how the system works, and doesn't always necessarily get the the, the most efficient outcome. But maybe that's not what you're after. What you're after is one that works. Yeah, that's right. And and. The IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, a couple of years ago gave us until 2030 to turn the whole economy around. So this is not a minor thing we're talking about doing. This is a major thing. And the economy is just not capable of doing that by itself. I mean, I think Malcolm X used to use the uh, the the, para, the idea of a chicken can't give you a duck egg because it's got the system of a chicken and it, the system of a chicken produces chicken eggs. If you want a duck egg, you're going to have to get yourself a duck. So we really have to create a new system and this is this regenerative culture thing. So the institutions that we need to build, we need to build them by putting them in practice from the smaller scale up to the top. They have to be um, attuned to a way which can actually can produce that duck egg that we want of a sustainable economy and a sustainable future for ourselves. So we've looked at cooperatives. Um, I mean, there's a certain amount of organisations that are legally available to us, and we're really lucky in this country that we have cooperatives of one of those. Um, so what is a co-op? The, um, the International Cooperatives Alliance, which has been around since the 1890s, I believe, um, their, their definition is a cooperative is an autonomous association of persons united voluntarily to meet their common economic, social and cultural needs and aspirations through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. Um, so they've got amazing principles which they're designed on voluntary and open membership, which just means, you know, if you want to join, you can. If you want to leave, you can. Uh, democratic member control, which is a big one. Like in, in all of the other business structures available to us, the, the the control of the company is attached to how many shares you've got. So it's a wealth-based control. So, of course, if you've got 51% of the shares, then you've got control of the company. Um, whereas in a co cooperative, uh, everybody gets one ownership share. So there's one person, one vote. It's democratic. Um, and that's how cooperatives are, are organised at a really basic level. There's, of course, there's many, many uh, variations on top of that. Member economic participation. So that's where you'll help fund the company, essentially. Uh, you've got skin in the game, as they say. There's there's a bit, of a, a bit of an input, more than just sort of being a customer. There's a bit extra um, autonomy and independence. So, of course, you know, 
there is, we do live in the capitalist world where everybody is sort of grasping for advantage. Uh, so cooperatives can be easy targets in that case, unless they're a little bit defensive. Um, so autonomy and independence is definitely a good one. Education, training and information, we have to keep ourselves going. A lot of cooperatives in the past have ended up getting what they call demutualised. If you can convince enough people to vote to turn the co-op into a company and then, say, float yourself on the stock exchange or sell yourself to a private company, that's the end of your co-op. And if your culture hasn't continued, if you haven't been preaching to the converted, then the next generation, how are they going to know why the co-op was built, what they were defending itself from and all of that stuff? What are the benefits? So there's that aspect of education, but you've also got to educate the general public because who knows what a co-op is? If you go and look on the federal ASIC website, if you look on the, the gov website, .gov, at business structures, co-op doesn't exist. <laughs> it's these other four. So, um, so we do need education and training and cooperation among cooperatives. And this is about umbrella co-ops. It's about like Southern Harvest working with City Farm to help with their their um, their flow through of boxes into town from the multi-farmer community-supported agriculture that they're doing. Um, just working together. Uh, it's simple. And that's another one of those cultural things. And concern for community is the last one. So those were created in a time when we didn't have a climate crisis. Um, so they're fantastic. They're an amazing building block. And the 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 harmonised legislation in Australia now. So each each state has harmonised legislation. It used to be each state had quite different legislation. Now it's all harmonised, which is great. That really works for us. Um, and where was I going there? That's right, yes. So the climate co-op is what Cocambra has come up with as a, a couple of additional things on top of those other those other. Uh, principles from the ICA so in view of, of climate change and the threats that we face how are we going to how are we going to build something that might last even if say like if the food system went down you look through history when the food system goes down the government system goes down so we need to do this pretty seriously so we our first thing is needs so Food is an essential need and we've also got energy co-op um, up and running and there'll be other sectors, but uh, a climate co-op has to address a basic human need. Now, we define a need as something that you'll die without. Um, so, you know, it's not widgets, it's not <laughs> something trivial. And, of course, once you've got all your needs filled and set, no worries, you, you build on the less important things. But um, for now, needs-based, so... Um, the second one is towards a healthy habitat. So whatever you're doing, it has to be done in a way that's working so that it's beneficial for the environment in no matter what way, because we've got so many crises, you know. There's <laughs> biodiversity loss, there's climate coming towards us. So the do no harm principle? No, the do good principle. Let's be do gooders okay. for the environment because it's we have so much technology, like the soil building technology, for instance, in the food sector. It's so critical. We hear people talking about um, geoengineering, which are these amazing schemes to blast silver nitrate into the atmosphere or do something with the ocean. And it's yeah, mucking around the with these experimental technologies on a scale that'll just knock us out so quickly if you have one tiny little mistake, which 
anyone who's done anything knows that you have mistakes, whether they're little or big. It's part of doing things. Um, so the form of geoengineering that I'd really like to see is mass conversion of the world's agriculture to regenerative soil-based, soil-building agriculture, and that would do it. That would draw an enormous amount, as long as you stop pumping it out, of course. Isn't it Walter Yenner who used to... Um, the former CSIRO scientist who used to say that uh, if we all trans, um, transferred our farming techniques to regenerative, it would be about two years to fix a lot of the problem with the carbon. As yeah. long as we stop pumping it out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Walter, right. well, yeah Walter's, um, he's associated with the city farm as well. Mm, mm. And, um, yeah, Walter's been pushing that. He does it globally now. He's, he's actually expanded his, his look, his, his, his influence right around the world. And, um, yeah, he's, he's got some good, um, for, for listeners who are interested, there's some good stuff that, and Walter is J-E-H-N-E. Uh, Walter, yeah, that's him. <laughs> if you want to look up um, um, YouTube, he's, there's some really good lectures he's got on YouTube about how the soil sponge works and how the how you fix uh, carbon and the impact that will have on the climate over time. Yeah, he's a fantastic communicator. I reckon it should be time to get him back on the yeah. show do fairly have, soon. Do we have some uh, uh, former recordings of Walter on our SoundCloud? Oh, I would have to dig around and yeah. see. There is one, but I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it, yes, yeah. yes. Last I'm, I'm quite Canberra, sure it's actually maybe. up there. Yeah, yeah. But the third one there for the climate co-ops is regenerative culture. Um, and regenerative culture, we've already talked about that. Um, but one of the things that we're also doing with regenerative culture is universal basic assets. Um, our definition of universal basic assets means that everybody in common owns the assets that are producing the things that they need, so their needs again. And if we can set up our businesses, our co-ops, in a way that directly means that the the ownership of the co-op and the co-op is there to own these assets if the ownership of the co-op slowly transforms to those who are actually directly involved in it so say from people who are investing money in the renewable energy one we get people to invest money to produce renewable energy output so renewable electricity output and then we open up that money to people who don't have any money as customers and over time those customers pay off essentially mm. that asset and then the asset is owned by the customers who are using that energy and it's operated in common by the co-op um, so universal basic assets is it's an equaliser it gets rid of that um, that inequality sort of mm. aspect of things um, there are a couple of other versions of universal basic assets out there but that's our one um, so that's essentially how we are, how we're dealing with climate change, and it's in the design of the businesses. It's building new institutions, and it's uh, yeah, yeah. It's so, so where is the farming co-op um, right now? So, you know, what, what do you need to maybe get uh, more interest or get it off the ground so it's thriving? Like, wh where are things at with that? So, you've got people coming out of a market gardening course, potentially looking at coming into the co-op to become market garden market garden farmers um is are we close to that or is there still a bit more to do well i reckon that could happen right now um mm -hmm. it would be slightly ahead of the co-op but that's fine <laughs> we can we can fit people into the structure when we've when we've got it um so the way what we're looking at is exactly what keith was explaining with the enterprise stacking model mm -hmm. where things will fit in but we're also 
we've both, I think, City Farm and this co-op have been looking overseas at uh, Joel Salatin um, and the Polyface Farms, or the Salatin family, I should say, um, over in the States who've pioneered this enterprise stacking model really in an amazing way. Um, and they have well over 20 people. They're, they lease a lot of land as well. They don't just work on their own land, but they'll lease land. And that's what we're going to do first because we don't want to just jump straight into buying land because um, we're going to make our mistakes. We'll get ourselves up and running, prove our model on the lease model, and then we'll start looking at buying land. So each lease that we do will be on a, a – it'll have a, a clause in that lease called a right of first refusal Clause, which is a common real so estate clause. So if the land clause. comes up for sale, you get the right of first refusal? That's right. They have to offer it to the co-op before it goes on to the general market. And if we've been good enough, we'll be able to afford it. <laughs> um, so I don't think it'll be all that long before we actually have the formal structure set up. We've, mm. we've been working through the all the philosophy behind it, I guess, uh, and all the issues behind it. So I think we've almost got that sorted. Then it's just a matter close. of getting registered uh, with the government and um, we've got some land that's sort of uh, that we know that we could use. Um, what we're a bit short on at the moment is market gardeners. Mm-hmm. So, I was going to say, is it people <laughs> that you need? That's right. It's the that's resource exactly you need right what now. we need. Yep. That's right, yep. And so the enterprises will be market gardens, but they'll also be, again, as Keith was saying, it can be anything, any niche within the food system can form an enterprise under this co-op. Um, so the the initial growing, the value adding, uh, the processing of, of meat, of vegetables, of whatever. Um, Maybe hire of equipment. Hire um, of equipment, yep. Um, repair of equipment. There's... there's even touristy stuff could come in at some stage where you know you can take do farm tours or yeah or there's all education sorts of yep um, um, shop fronts cafes restaurants yeah the, the list yep. just goes on and on so you there's see a lot of that of in the UK too that that whole yeah, sort of right. mm. whole systems farms where they're not just a farm they're all the other pieces you yeah. just mentioned as well yeah and that way you can you don't need a lot of land you can actually do a lot of things on a very small space. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's so just a matter of organising yourself. So the co-op will be owned by by the customers, also by the farmers, and it'll be by support workers too. So each of these enterprises is a little a little mini business within the co-op. And I know myself; I've been a sole trader for a number of years now. I hate doing the business side of things. It, I'm not that good at it. It's difficult. It's it's all this stuff from the government. You've got to do all this stuff for them. Anyway, I hate it. So one of the main things here, and this has been taken from the Mondragon cooperatives over in Spain, is a, a business support unit, essentially an accounting unit. Now, when they started back in 1956, I think it was, they built uh, a couple of manufacturing co-ops, just very small ones, and just pumping out a few paraffin heaters. But then the... Uh, the, the priest, Father Arismendi, who was uh, leading the whole thing, just blindsided him by saying, right, eh, next one's going to be a, uh, a credit union. <laughs> what on earth do we need one of those things for? You're mad. Um, but he pushed it and got it through, and that was the piece of the puzzle that really pushed it through. Mm-hmm. So now all of these um, co-ops in the, in the local area, and you remember the... The Mondragon is in the Basque country in the north of Spain, and they were essentially under siege from the dictator Franco at that time because during the Spanish Civil War they'd fought Franco. So he wasn't very keen on Basque people. Um, 
so it's a very poverty-stricken, very, uh, yeah, not much opportunity there. So w- they wound up being able to put the money that they saved into their own community through a credit union. And very quickly, the credit union developed an arm uh, which was just to support the establishment and running of, of new cooperatives. And they've done that for years now. They have a tiny, tiny failure rate. It's like, so they can just reproduce a successful model. Yeah, that's right, yep. Yeah. And, and they're also looking after the running co-ops as well. So they've basically got an accounting wing of the credit union and that just keeps an eye on things. And if a co-op's going badly on something, then they can say, oh, yeah, g'day, credit union here. Um, we just wanted to, you know, have a bit of a yarn about this and see if we can't help you fix it up. And we've got these people over here doing something similar. They're doing really well. Why don't you guys have a yarn and see if you can work together so that... So it's a mentoring, it's a, it's a financial mentoring and all sorts of stuff. So... We are very keen to uh, to set one of these up as one of the first cooperatives so that we can maintain successful enterprises throughout it. So if there are any accounting people in town in particular who uh, like the idea of this, we need your help because we don't have any accounting people. A tired accountants looking for something to well, do? Well, yeah. you could probably be anywhere in the world at this yeah. point, I think, with the technology we have and still be yeah. really valid. Um, and it's also... Many of these enterprises will be a build-your-own-job sort of thing. So you could do this part-time to start with, maybe a couple of hours a week as there's one or two enterprises, but it could build as we get more and more enterprises into a fantastic thing, and that could spin off itself into other sectors so that you're supporting co-ops all over the place throughout the climate co-op system. Um, So, yeah, if anyone's interested in that, do let us know. That would be great. It's one of our missing pieces of the puzzle. That's right. I'm not particularly good on on money part of it. uh. So um, where is the land for the co-op likely to be? Like, where where are your thoughts about having the land? Is it going to be within the ACT? that's right. That was where we started this, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. So um, because there's many enterprises, the enterprises can come and go. We can go over multiple blocks of land. So we're aiming... they don't have to be connected. They they don't have to be connected. No, no, they can be anywhere. It'd be great if they were, but they don't have to be. So we're going to start off at Brooks Valley Farm out near Bungandore, which is my family farm. Um, That's got... I think there's probably about six acres of creek flat there, um, which is a rare commodity in these parts. If you go off the creek flat, you're on rocky shale (laughs) hilltops. Um, So it's got a lot of... um, There's been market garden already there, organic market garden, for 25 years. Um, So there's a lot of infrastructure there. There's good water. There's only 20 minutes from Civic. There's a lot going on there which makes it a really ideal site as well as the owners are on side with us and they, um, they, will, they will be what we call aligned landholders. So rather than just getting a straight commercial lease, oh, this is as much as I can get out of it, so that's what I'm going to ask you, we might be able to do a profit-sharing arrangement with them so that when the enterprise starts making a profit, which we will get them to do, uh, that's when the landholder starts getting paid a percentage of that profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that incentivises the landholder to help <laughs> the businesses uh, make a profit. It's almost like a commission, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. a rent commission or something. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any particular um, types of market gardeners you'd like to see get involved? Is there sort of an imbalance of um, the 
adventures that people are uh, wanting nah, to pursue? Nah, look at this no, point. No, we're, we're, we're happy with any sort of market gardening. Any sort of farmer. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so it's not, not necessarily restricted. We haven't talked to, too much about what the farm activity is, but it's not really very, well, in my mind, it wasn't very restricted at all. It could it's be not all restricted. sorts of things. We want diversity yeah. is what we want so, so that all of those little quite, bits can work together. It's quite yeah. often really good in, in a far, to have a mix of animals as well as plants um, there's the, because that's how the system evolved in the first place. And so you get, you get a much better environmental outcome that way. Well, you can get a bit if you do it properly. So I think if you get people coming and taking your course and they, you know, go through their little uh, 40 metre square plot or 40 long plot, I should say, not square plot, um, and they decide, you know, maybe I'm not really a vegetable grower. Maybe I'm more of a, a chook person or a duck person yeah. or, a, um, you know, a mushroom growing person. You know, is, is that possible? Because you're obviously oh, teaching yeah, the principles of, of market gardening. You don't have to be growing... Um, um, fruits and vegetables. You could be working with livestock. You could be working with mycelium. You could be doing other things. Yeah, there are there are additional things if you that are that probably won't be covered in this course. We're looking after animals because that's a there's a whole lot of different pests and diseases and issues you've got to deal with. Same with mushrooms. Uh, we used to actually run mushroom co- uh, mushroom courses out of the city farm, but um, yeah, you, you could do something similar with mushrooms, but that's not included in this course. But you know, if there's a demand for it, we can always do it. Um, but um, animals, I think, are a really important part. And that's one of the things that's really good if we go down when we go down to Saguna to the New South Wales TAFE. A farm there. He's got animals. He's got them all into. Everything's all integrated together, mm. and um, it's the integration which is really important. You've got to think of the thing as a whole system, because every bit integra- inter- inter- interacts with every other bit, and that's the important part. If you start breaking things up into little into little silos, that's when it all starts to fall apart. Yeah. So the um, the core of the model that we're using is we, we mentioned there was a multi-stakeholder co-op. So you've got the customers and then you've got the workers, many of whom are farmers. And the, the core relationship between those is what's called a community supported agriculture, which is a form of risk sharing between uh, between the customers and the farmers. And of course, having it in a cooperative where everybody's the owner makes it an even more shared risk. So it'll be really difficult to go under from a single event in a co-op because you've got that support. Um, but the particular sort of community-supported agriculture we're using comes from, a, I'm, I'm going to murder this, sorry to anybody who speaks French out there, the Côté Jardins. Côté Aha, excellent. I, I do speak French. You don't know that about oh, me, did I you? I didn't, no, no, no. No, I've been hiding that one. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. How do you say that? Côte Jardin. Côte Jardin. Right. I'll have to get some training. Um but they uh, they are a market garden over in France, and I think they've got 130, 120 customers, something like that. But one of the one of the responsibilities for being a customer of this particular market garden is that you have to spend one Sunday every season working on the farm. Now this takes care of a whole ton of things. This is that community. The connection with nature part of it. So you're not just getting your food box. You're um, you're um, you're also 
Sorry, yeah. lost my train of thought. Yeah. Just yeah. 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 anything that needs being done on the farm. It's not you know whatever your capabilities are. Yeah, that's are. right. Yeah. So you have right. to, to organise yourself. So, the, yeah. It's a way, it's also an education <laughs> process from doing yeah. because you're actually working on the farm and you're learning as you go. So not only do you get your food box, you get a bit of education as well, a bit of outdoor exercise. You learn a bit. Yep. So, yep. Um, you know, there's pluses, pluses all around. Get out amongst it, yeah, yeah. So that's a really unique element that we're going to be using as well. And as you can see, we've, we've used bits and pieces from all around the world that have been proven models, and we're integrating them together into something quite unique. Yeah, so it's... But at this stage, it's all stuck inside our heads. Uh, most, well, no, that's not entirely well, it's coming true. out, though. No, it's, it's coming out. It sounds like you've, you've got some more tangible things happening there. Yeah, yeah so, um, yeah, the, our next step then is to actually get it started. Mm-hmm. And um, our, our main constraint at the moment is we need gardeners. Mm-hmm. Yep. Once we've got that, I think we're away. Okay. I reckon, yep. So, yep. And customers. Yes. So as we're almost out of time again, we're just going to remind all those potential gardeners where they can go to get information to take the course or get involved in the farming co-op. So, Keith, to come and get in touch with you about the course. Get in touch, yeah, get in touch with me at MG Training. It's MG for Market Garden Training, all one word, at ccfarm.org.au. And if you miss that, go to, just go to the City Farm website, which is www.ccfarm.org.au, and you'll see the links there. Wonderful. And if they want to get involved in the farming co-op, Scotty, how would they go about that? Well, they could do two emails. There's buildafarmcoop at gmail.com or there's info at cocambra.org.au. That's C-O and then Canberra. .org.au and that will get you directly in touch with us and we'll, we'll, we'll try and get you to... We'll get you organised, don't yep, worry. that's right. Yep. Once you get your hands on that soil, you won't look back. Well, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful and uh, yep. we're just about out of time Customers welcome as well. And, <laughs> customers welcome. Yeah, and I'll, accountants. I will be a customer, yes, accountants too. Um, so a huge thank you to and Keith. lawyers. Yeah, Keith Coles from Canberra City Farm for joining us today and do take a look at the Market Gardening course and do pop out to Canberra City Farm when... That's possible. Is it possible to visit at we the We have tours every Monday and Thursday. So if you want to go out there, I'd suggest you send an email first mm. just to make sure it's on. But usually it's every Monday and every Thursday someone t- someone takes – people who are interested on about an hour's tour around the city farm so you can have a bit of a squiz to see what we do. Wonderful. And do support the uh, Canberra City Farm growers when you run into them in the community. I think there's a Department of Broccoli definitely has a regular stall at Epic, I think, or they do yeah. the garlic there anyway, for sure. And be sure to support 2XX where yeah. you hear about these things where you never, ever would anywhere else. 2XXFM.org.au. Support us. You can volunteer. You can subscribe. It's very important as well. You can bequest us your whole estate. All sorts of things. We'll see you later. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. 
Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay. L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.